Hello listeners, David Newton here. I hope you're having as much fun listening to the program as I am producing content for it each and every week. Although this is a free podcast for all of our listeners, contributions from supporters really help me to keep this going. To show your support, please visit roostertailtalk.com and locate the support tab. Every contribution helps this podcast to continue to bring you more hydroplane news, interviews, and history. Now, enjoy the show. Tail Talk, a podcast dedicated to everything related to the sport we all love, hydroplane racing. I'm your host, David Newton, and it's time once again, so sit back, relax, and welcome to Tail Talk. It is June 2nd, 2020, and this is episode 37, part two of my interview with Dave Hillwalk. In continuation of our conversation last week, I talk about different hull designs with Dave and the possibilities of the evolution of the sport. We talk about favorite memories in his racing career, the bud years, and maybe a few other surprises. I know you're big into designs and the next step for evolution of hydroplanes and, and, and to find more stability with speed and all that. So I know you're a really big proponent of the two-wing design, um, especially your time with Circus, having that that two or three wing built there. And then uh, your first unlimited ride, your first race in unlimited was in the two wing, which you won with the Coors Dry. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about what, with that two wing design, why didn't it really take off in the sport more? I know there was a couple of holes built, but it didn't really last for too long. Well, without getting overly technical, the, the problem we were looking at, you know, Going back in that, you know, back then, we were we were looking at, you know, how can we get the boat to lift off the water stall and come back down? That's what Ron's line of thought was. Now, Ron's dad, Ted Jones, you know, he had a completely different opinion on, you know, what a boat model needed to look like. Because I had the opportunity when I was down working for Ron Jones Marine, doing some things for him, that Ted would walk in and he'd have a few comments about you know, what designs look like, which I thought was really interesting to listen to two different lines of thought. Mm-hmm. But, but we were working on, we wanted to put smaller wings and higher angle attack and the hopes is it would rise off the water, lose ground effect and come back down. That was a good idea. In, in practice though, what we didn't understand was how much the boat yawed, in other words, skidded sideways. Mm-hmm and how much of the air would be cut off to that ram wing, you know, as I think goes through a corner, particularly a place like in Detroit that you'll turn like 45 degrees, you know, going around that corner or Madison. So a boat in those positions is going to be, it's going to close off a lot of air. Then it becomes hydraulic and then it starts to react against itself. So that was one of the problems. The other problem was we didn't really understand that, how much water went, you know, due to the yaw, how much water went through the center of the boat. So every time we got the boat outside of the big, you know, course like San Diego, every time we got it onto a 
course, it had a tight turn. Every time we ran really well, we'd come back and part of the boat would be missing. Budweiser <laughs> suffered the same problem with her two-wing boat. Yeah. And we'd started with a three-wing boat, and we didn't really run into those problems with that, but we didn't really have that. You know, next year would have been the development of that boat that would have been bumped into a few more problems we didn't understand yet. Uh, so then you couple that with like Glenn Davis's boat, his canard boat. That really taught me a lesson. The day that that happens, the day I just sort of slapped my forehead and said, oh, I get it now. So even if you had a boat that's pit stable, like Glenn's boat was, and you got to see in practice what happens. If you take four to 7,000 pounds, and it's just a physics lesson, you take something that weighs four to 7,000 pounds, and you throw it in one direction, either by a propeller or push it, or I don't care how you do it. But you get it going in a direction at 180 miles an hour, and it bounces off of something and goes up. Even if it's pitch stable, before it's going to stall and come back down, it's going to go a long ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what happened with Glenn's boat. It just went up and then finally stalled. But trouble is, he was 40 feet in the air when it went straight down. Yeah. So that's the day that I says, oh, it... Uh, just forget about that because we're better off to blow the boat over and keep the guy closer to the water accelerate better because uh, both of them are going to be a crash we're just talking about what kind of crash mm-hmm. and that's that's really the history of it uh, you know we had ideas of what to do uh, but it just probably because of yaw more than anything secondly the shape of the sponsons of how the sponsons uh, were shaped that, you know, that became a problem. You know, I tell a story about um, one guy that used to work on the circus team. He was talking about, Lucero came up to him and said, I don't understand why that old boat still runs better than the new boat. The new boat was wider. It should, you know, had the same bottom angle and, mm-hmm. and all of that. Well, the guy in the circus crew was with me the day that we, that we changed the deck shape of that boat and how we cut it and how we put the radiuses on it and all of that. And the guy was a sheet metal worker, so he understood that very well. And and he turned around and it was at San Diego when Lucero said that. And all the boat bows that were on the same trailer at about the same angle, if you ever look at them, they're all lined up. You know, and so if you if you stand about six feet up seven feet up and look down the pit row, you'll see that all the sponsors look about the same. And so back then, everybody had just regular sponsors except for that boat. You know, a regular Ron Doe sponsor. A lot of them had a radius, but they hadn't changed the deck line. Yeah. And so he looked, pointed at Lucero and says, look, you can see it right there. You can see the, the, the nose of that boat was about six, eight inches lower than all the rest of them. He goes, that's why. <laughs> you know, but everybody had copied something, but they hadn't really learned. It wasn't just the radius, it was an overall shape. <laughs> well, do you think if there was more money to, to do R&D and, um, and see more development with that, do you think there are more are better ideas on, on whole design out there, or do you think it's kind of at its pinnacle right now? Well, we could probably learn some more. I mean, subsequent to... I mean, we learned just about everything we needed to know at Circus. But at Budweiser, we learned more about why things. We learned more about yaw. Mm-hmm. You know, we looked more about shape, and that's why the 
the boats are shaped differently on the side and mm-hmm. you know we at circus we were looking at you know we had looked at yaw but mostly i was looking you know at in a straight line because we didn't perceive how much y'all the boats were going through it but otherwise we spent a lot of time working with that that's where you saw the fences and deck shapes on the right side of the boat and all that stuff change and everybody's going to copy that yeah you know yeah. and so you know just because the molds are there they buy the parts from them and stuff like that um you could probably develop some more shapes you know i'm not sure you know, that would be a development things, but the boats are pretty well developed, mm-hmm. you know, over the last 20 years, you know, of course, you know, when I came up with the shapes I did, everybody at the time thought everything else was totally developed, you know? <laughs> yeah. So if somebody had enough money and had, and had the right mindset, they probably could discover something, but they'd, they'd have to try. Like every time somebody looks at a cowling design, I sort of chuckle and went, I've screwed up every possible cowling design. <laughs> you know, I made all kinds of different cowling designs, and they all sucked. <laughs> you know, so literally, yeah. you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, somebody could probably come up with something if they had enough money and enough uh, time to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it'd be nice to have some. You know, some people have developed some engines. It'd be nice if you yeah. could get an engine that was a low enough cost that was a piston engine. Yeah, I don't see it happening, but. Yeah. If somebody wanted to do something, that'd be cool. But trouble is, in today's environment, you know, as soon as you made something really cool and really fast, they'd outlaw it. <laughs> yeah. You know, back, you know, when when I started, when somebody came out with a new idea, everybody just emulated. They didn't try to figure out how to outlaw it. Right. In today's environment, in racing, practically, you know, it's not just boats. You know, in auto race and everything, anything that's new and inventive that that nets a big gain, somebody figures out a way to outlaw it. Yeah. yeah so they, then it, yeah. it it really diminishes that unlimited mindset and that creative mindset. Uh, uh, you know, for you know anybody involved in the sport, it's just you know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. In, in today. Yeah, that is too bad. Because I know one thing that was really unique about like the '80s, I can think of in particular, is how you know how many different power plants were out there, and and all of the different things that were being tried, and allowed to be tried. Because I mean, you think there's probably, I don't know, maybe even six engines that were tried, probably even more than that, and that were used. So it's too bad. It's too bad. Yeah, you know, and like I said, you know, I I was looking at. Back during the hydroprop era, when the turbine was being so restricted, mm-hmm. you know, we were looking at putting together a Griffin. But yeah. the problem is, we knew that as sure as as sure as we developed a new boat with a Griffin in it, you know, they would outlaw it immediately. So mm-hmm. it was something fun to think about and put on a drawing board to figure out if we knew how to do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the answer is we knew how to do it, but you know, what would the result be? Yeah. So. You know, you have to think about those things in a pragmatic way. So, so uh, there, so there was serious talk about, or somewhat serious talk about, running a Griffin twenty-ish years ago with Budweiser. Yeah, yeah, that was, and you know, that's why one of the reasons we're supportive with with Ed Cooper's boat. Mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of, you know, part of that thinking. Uh, although they designed their own boat and did their all their own thing, but you know, we were looking at, you know, what would it have to look like and how could we apply what we've done in the turbines to a piston boat and, mm-hmm. and make it successful? And, and the boat's all of that. 
you know? Yeah. You took and added some serious money with Ed's program, you'd see some interesting results. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that would have that would have been something to see. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one day, I think, I think we were racing it, it was Fred's thing, and, and um, uh, Jack Berry had a griffin in something, I forget where. I remember it was at Hawaii, and I'd uh -huh. never been around the pit area when the griffins were running, uh -huh. you know? Uh -huh. And it was, you know, there where I couldn't really see the course, and somebody came around. And man, the wrenches were rattling off the tables, and I'm going like, "What in the heck was that thing?" <laughs> you know? Of course, it didn't make it very far, but God, it was sure impressive. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to play uh, a game of favorites. I've got some different things I want to ask you. I just want you to share what the, your favorite one thing of, of that category would be. Um, so just kind of first to mind, but what the favorite one is of that. So out of all the race victories that you've had in your career, which was your favorite race win? Oh, I think probably for Fred, you know, because mm -hmm. you had to put it in context. We had, we had surprised Bernie with something that, that in the rest of the fleet, really, mm -hmm. you know, Bernie and Woomer, the, the big matriarchs with Winston and Budweiser, you know, and here we are, Fred Leland, you know, and, uh, and Fred had called me and asked me if I wanted to come work on his boat. And I did, cause I was out of work. And, uh, 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 so I went up there and says, well, you know, and Fred wasn't afraid to work, you know, Fred was not a guy like me that, you know, it's, I may not have a lot of money, and that's what I grew up in racing. I didn't have a lot of money, but I wasn't afraid to work. I could build my own engine. I could build my own boat. I, yeah. As long as I had enough time, I could make anything happen. <laughs> and, and Fred was that way. And so when I went out there and says, well, you know, geez, we need to lighten this thing up by 100 pounds. We need to build a skid fin that looks like this and a bracket that looks like that and a rudder bracket that looks like that. And we'll push the motor way back in this thing and and the gearbox needs to have a different shaft and and uh, an and input package, and we need to be able to change gear ratios. And Fred goes, okay. <laughs> you know, it just goes to work. You know, well, uh, and like I said, I think I said something online the other day. I'll never forget, I had stepped out of Fred's boat, and I think it was Evansville, mm -hmm. and we just out-qualified Budweiser with it, you know. And... <laughs> You know, we didn't have any money at all, you know, and I, I stepped there and I was just, you know, a little intimidated. You know, Bernie was right there and on the same dock and I'm walking by and just trying not to make any trouble, you know. And I, but I, I was standing there doing something with the boat and, and I could hear Bernie talk to Ron Brown and says, Ronnie, you want to just tell me how they out qualified us with no money? <laughs> the crew on the rock boat was 
it, it, it looked like a well one guy was he's wearing a captain's hat uh, a Levi jacket with the arms cut off another guy's in a hand in a tank top and a bandana another guy's in bib overhauls <laughs> you know and and is walking he's walking by me at the dock and I'm sort of grinning you know because I went man I can't believe that this happened you know and uh, Reinberger comes by and he looks me square in the eye and he goes just friggin' great we just got beat by the village people <laughs> so hard you know so when you know in in 94 fred had not won anything but and this is a guy that you have to remember fred when i was racing limited boats i'd call up fred because he had a, a milling machine in his in his living room of his of his huge brick house he built a carolson five liter at that time which is a national mod now mm-hmm. and uh you know he had a, a bridge board sitting in his living room you know so i'd go in knock on Fred's door and said, Hey, can I machine some pistons? Sure. There's a machine over there. There's the fixture, you know? And so that history goes back of watching Fred go from just a hard worker at everything. And he wanted to do well at, at turbines and he was, and he had really the right stuff to do it, the right equipment to do it. Yeah. Uh, a little like Stockland does now. I mean, Stockland's got more equipment than anybody. He has more equipment out here in terms of how to build things and, and where to build things and, and the equipment yeah. to, to, to build things yeah. than Budweiser does or did. So Fred had that, you know, so if you just worked, worked hard enough and if you had good people, you could do exemplary things. And something that happens in racing that's, that's unique, I think, is you would see a guy like Chip, for instance, would go to a, a, a particular team and all of a sudden some of the people who used to work with him showed up. And the same thing happened to me when I showed up at Fred's and I'm working there for a while. And then, you know, next thing I know, Danny Walters comes, calls up and says, Hey, uh, what's going on out there? And I says, well, it's changing a bunch of stuff. I think it'll be successful. We just, I said, the motor stuff is actually okay. Gearbox stuff he's, needs to be changed a little bit, but it's going to be okay. I think it'll be fast. You know, so he comes out and, and he gets, you know, and he talks a little bit, and then next thing you know, Fred needs a truck driver, and so next thing you know, Danny's on board. <laughs> Shortly after that, Ron Horning, the guy named was nicknamed Bub, yep. you know, guy that worked on the circus crew, he comes out and says, "Well, you need some help," you know, <laughs> you know, and and so he he you know helps on that team and and did that. Another guy by the name of Scott Erickson. So next thing you know, he had a pretty talented group of people, and I've always said that. I says it's not. And I can tell you, I'll tell you another story about Budweiser after this. Yeah. It, so we had this group of people and and we're racing and we got the boat pretty fast. It's suffering some problems. The steering had never gone that fast before. And so we had to rebuild some of that. And mm-hmm. then we got it going. We finally got most of that fixed by Tri-Cities and we're racing 10 hour hard. You know, I remember him saying one time, he came up to me on the dock and says, why do you race me so hard? And I says, because I can't, Chip. That's why. <laughs> you know, and because he, you know, he hadn't had somebody run him every lap, you right. know, for a long time. Yeah. And you know, and that's what we did. And anyway, what happened was that I forget what heat it was as a final, but we we poked a hole in the spots, and we we're running it hard enough now that it it poked a hole in the spots and it tore the right spots enough. Okay. So uh, that's the that's. Four days before Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. 
So we pick everything up, we head back to the shop, we put one guy in an airplane so he can start laying up a sponson. <laughs> Danny and I and the rest of the crew build a new sponson, put it on the boat. And oh, by the way, we went to a slow pitch game and got most valuable, most valuable players at the slow pitch game against the NHRA. <laughs> Even though we hadn't got, we'd been up for three nights straight. We'd had like an hour nap each night. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so that whole weekend unfolds. Danny and I get it all done, and uh, uh, we load up the truck and we drive down to Seattle. We uh, uh, park the boat in the pits. Uh, and this was, we had made, well, I forget it was the second day of qualifying or the first day, I can't remember. But we make it to the pits about five in the morning. It's just getting daylight. Danny sleeps in the truck. We flip for who got to sleep in the truck. <laughs> Danny sleep, <laughs> Danny won, so he can slip in the truck. I slept on the trailer. And that was the beginning of that weekend. Oh, and, and the week before that weekend. Mm-hmm. So we go out there and we go, well, you know, we're just going to, you know, take our best swing at this again and see what happens. And uh, so we go out there and we manage to get a better a better run at the first heat. And Budweiser and Hanauer and Tater are busy racing each other. Well, they'd forgotten about me. And I happened to got a run on them and got on the outside and, and, and held them in a lane and got around them. And at that time, you got lane choice all day. Well, we went and ran the table. And I'll never forget Fred that day. Fred came in and says, what lane are you going to choose? And I says, lane two. And he goes, you choose lane two and I'll fire you. I says, well, okay, but I'm still going to choose lane two. (laughs) (laughs) And so we chose lane two and we won the race. And, you know, for Fred, I mean, that was just, you know, something that he had only dreamed about, yeah. you know, him and Jackie. You know, it's just something mm-hmm. that just was never going to happen. And, you know, it wasn't like he did it. It wasn't like he backed into it somehow, you know. <laughs> he had managed to beat the best guys of the best guys with the best teams with the most money. You know, it just couldn't have been a better script. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we won some races for circus that we felt that, you know, we were slaying the dragon. And, and you know, but it wasn't quite to that degree, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, there's also races for, you know, like when they came back to race from my, after I got injured, you know, it's like mm-hmm. a lot of people, oh, he can't do, you know, he's not going to be able to steer that boat, blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, we'll just wait eight races then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, then we'll talk about it later. Yeah, yeah, just prove it on the water, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Well, did you have a, ever have a favorite radio guy? Yeah, Danny, of course, Danny Walters was, Danny and I did the radios with Chip, and we had developed a way to communicate. And our radio guys different back then, and most of the radio guys now are more like timekeepers. Mm-hmm. They're telling the driver where to turn, where to go in here, where to go out there, uh, to get there on time with a speed limit and whatnot. And, and we had still had a speed limit back then, but they're playing a little different game. So the 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 Radio guy now is more of a timekeeper, and, and if you listen to the radios, you'll see they're telling him, you, you need to cut here, you need to be over there, you know, where Chip didn't have any, you know, we weren't telling Chip how to drive the boat. Uh, and, uh, you know, Danny and I, we, 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 have, we had an approach as to how to use words and to get a lot of direction out of not many words. So Danny would take half the course, and I would take the other when Chip was driving. 
and so we wouldn't overlap. And and we had a list of commands that told Chip what to do with a word because you have to remember back then radios didn't didn't work worth a damn either. <laughs> You know, yeah. so you might hear about half a word. So if you tried to tell somebody a sentence back then, <clears throat> you might as well be speaking Greek because the driver wasn't going to be able to understand the dead spots in between words as to what you were trying to tell him. Mm-hmm. So you had to just give him commands, you know, like we would say inside one, inside two, inside three. We're telling him exactly where to move the mm-hmm. boat. Mm-hmm. And Chip could do that. And, and, Danny could do the same thing for me. Lauren Sari was another great radio guy. Did it differently. Mm-hmm. You know, he <clears throat> did all of the same things that Danny did. And I, I, you know, asked for some things to be put into place so that, you know, what I was used to saying and hearing didn't change. Mm-hmm. You know, that that would be it. And Lauren did that very, very well. And Lauren added another, I used to call Lauren, he was the voice of conservatism. <laughs> you know, and he, and he did it in a great way. And I give you an example. We made the start in Detroit, flying down the back, flying down the front freeway, going around the turn, exiting the turn, getting ready to take over control of the race. Mm-hmm. And Lauren would come on the radio and say, "You know, you might want to pay attention. You just went through there at like fifty miles an hour. Roller's got to be like two feet." that was that was great information that you know oh yeah don't be stupid you know and lauren would pick you know lanes to go through he'd get Mm -hmm. and you know he had some place that he would go that he would he would be telling you you know go through in lane one come in in lane one go out in lane three go you know Mm -hmm. he would he would direct traffic so that you just didn't make the stupid mistakes by running into a wave or spinning the boat out or breaking the boat too, or, mm-hmm. you know, all of those things that, and, you know, a radio guy's a pretty valuable guy, you know, in terms of yeah. running an overall race team, radio guy is in control of just as much equipment as the driver is. If the radio guy makes a bad decision that turns out to blow the boat over or to, to flood a hundred thousand dollar, uh, turbine engine with with boat parts or water well that's within his, his within his capability to do it right next to that you know of course the driver he can do he can screw up all the same things that the radio guy can mm-hmm. and and i was just telling the guy that was working on the propellers because i did that at circus i said the guy back here and i always tell that to him i said you know you're in charge of making sure the propellers are not cracked that the shafts are not cracked and making sure that there's no dings in anything that's going to come apart and all of that. But think of it, think it further. You're the only guy that comes up here. When the boat comes in, you turn the propeller over. You're in control of that engine because you're listening to the engine to see if it has a scrape or a bind or anything. You're listening to the gearbox to see, does it turn over normally or has it got some bind or is it turn over harder than it did before? So I'd always tell the propeller guy, you're you, you got your hands on about $500,000 worth of stuff, too, so be careful. <laughs> you yeah. know, you're, you're, you're in control of more than you think. Right. <laughs> well, did you ever, ever have a favorite boat that you raced? Oh, geez, I don't, you know, like Fred's old boat, you know, we did it both the two boats that we ran there, mm-hmm. you know, we called it old Lucky, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. we got lucky with that boat a few times. Uh, you know, that was a great boat. The boats we built for Budweiser were 
you know, they were they, these works of art that they're still racing today, some 20 some years later. Yeah. Right? They're yeah. still racing today. I mean, that's a testament to how good of equipment it really was. Mm-hmm. Still, it's a state of the art design. And back when we were running those boats, I mean, we had them tuned up like I remember that, you know, we were running at Madison and we had, you know, the sort of the flight controls tuned perfectly and the balance of the boat perfectly. Where I could come off the corner and the crew liked it because I'd stand the boat up about three inches up off the water and just run it down the hole straight away and set it back down and go to the turn. They go, oh, that's so cool. Like Mike Campbell said, that's just the coolest thing I've ever seen. Because you, know? yeah. <laughs> you could see that it was a control thing, that we're picking it up and you could watch the, you could watch the canard because you're close to it there at Madison. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you can see me pick it up and run it down the straightaway, control it, you know, stall it there and run it down the straightaway, not touching the water for you know, like 15 seconds, you know, and set it down and turn, go around turn, you know, so the boats that were that finely tuned were, you know, something to see. And then, of course, the Elstrom boat was, you know, kind of a the same thing. It had a few things different, but, you know, it, it took care of me in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. you know. I crashed it a few times. It hit me a few times, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, you know, but it was a great boat that did a lot of things that, you know, people didn't think were possible. What was your favorite class to have raced? Well, you know, it's turned in, you know, the super stock and the flat bottom racing got me going. And had I not had the people around that to teach me as much as I learned, mm-hmm. I couldn't have been successful at all the other classes. So I have to say that's one of the favorites, you know, although I will say like the first time I, I watched when we were racing flat bottoms, there was some chatter on about that here this last week. I mean, they a, Mike Ekert was trying to run this boat called the U-Bet. Okay. And the poor guy, he'd show up every weekend and he'd go out and run about a lap or two and he'd blow up his engine. And it was basically the same as a super stock engine, the stock seven liter engine at the time. And uh, I, uh, uh, I had watched that happen for a couple of weeks and finally I went over here because I felt sorry for him. The guy looked like he had, you know, enough enough dollars to do things right mm-hmm. and i said hey mike do, if you need some help on that engine i'll put your engine together you know and so i ended up i took all of his busted parts and i put them back to put them back together and made an engine that ran and then then he'd asked me to drive it i won they ended up winning the grand prix at uh and the seven liter class at lake samamish one of the last races of the year i think you know and i remember when i got in that boat and drove it the first time for him that I went, wow, I really like this. I'd be really good with these great big boats because it was the <laughs> you know, first time I'd driven a boat that was 24 feet long, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I just remember that thought. I went, I'd be good at these. <laughs> you know, so turned out, I, you know, it worked out well for me. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> what was your favorite race site to have gone to? Oh, geez. I mean, Seattle is all the fanfare and it's because the fans is there, you know, and and everybody lives here, you know, so that's the Mm -hmm. the great place to win, you know, but my favorite race course really was Evansville. Really? Yeah. Why is that? Evansville, I was sad to see that one go. I mean, I like the people there. I like the venue. I like the race course. I forget how many times I won there. It was a really, it was a really a nice race course, a nice place to race. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Tri Cities and, and 
at San Diego, they're great because, you know, they were fun because they're big racetracks, you know, and it's fun to go run a boat at its potential, you know, mm-hmm. run a boat really fast. That's fun, you know, and, and, uh, but Evansville was, uh, you know, because it was a different shaped course and whatnot, you know, it was unique. Yeah, I had that dog leg on the dog leg on the front stretch. That was very right. unique on the right. no, no other no other. Blue, I think they had the Blue Angels there one year. Uh, it was there, but that was kind of their nemesis. You know, they, they got into a, a, a fight over the air show guys and the boat boat race guys, and mm-hmm. you know that didn't end well. Out of all the seasons you raced in Unlimiteds, which which was your favorite? Oh. Um. I think I know the. I think a couple of them. I think winning, winning as a as a crew chief when we when we won the championship for Circus Circus, mm-hmm. that was first. And then when we won, you know, in '96 with Fred and with Pico, you know, they were a great group of people that put a lot into that boat. Yeah. You know, they were Pico was a really uh, a bunch of smart guys at Pico. Those are the guys that really helped us into the modern era of dynoing engines and and transmissions and stuff that make our cars run, you know, mm-hmm. 300,000 miles now instead of, you know, 50,000 miles. So, you know, that was a fun year too. Well, that was, that was a very magical year for you in 96. Uh, I want to ask this question, you know, in, in all, all different kinds of sporting events, there's different roles that the, the, the people play, right? And unlimiteds are no different. A lot of, uh, drivers over the years have played kind of that villain role, um, whether it's self-selected or given to them by the media or whatnot. Um, and in, for several years, you were kind of portrayed in this light. Um, I don't really take that as a bad thing. I think that's kind of also a sign of respect in some ways because you're going to, you know, the organizations want the one person that's at the top of their game to kind of play that role because you're always, you know, trying to slug the best of the business, right? I'm just curious, did you ever have fun with this role? Thinking over the years, like, I know Bill Muncy would play this up from time to time, but what was your take on, on that whole role in your career? Well, I, like you said, Muncy had the, you know, anybody that's been very, very successful will be put in that light. Mm-hmm. And, and Bill Muncy was put in that same light. He was, you know, cast with a guy that had, you know, the best equipment and the best engines and the best everything. And so that was always the excuse as to why he won. But the truth is, Bill Muncy had win in anything, you know. And then he got, you know, something that I experienced as a child. I mean, I was like, I think, 10 years old. And I saw Bill Muncy was going to race at Lake Sammamish. He had his 225 hydroplane there that was, I think it was an old Colcock hull or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it wasn't the fanciest piece of equipment. The engine wasn't very polished, you know, but he'd still go out and win, you know. <laughs> and so for that, you know, he would be rewarded with extra special attention, you know, that he would be uh, scrutinized more than the average guy. <laughs> so that particular day, Bill had come into the pittery and they did their normal thing when the boats come in that they inspect all the boats, inspect the equipment. And part of that was inspecting the driver's safety equipment, his helmet and his life jacket. Mm-hmm. Well, Bill had a, had his orange helmet that had some different shades of blue and Bill on it. You know, maybe, maybe it said Bill Muncy, I can't remember. Okay. But he had his name on it and he had a few pinstripes on it. Well, the race officials had told him that, no, that helmet didn't qualify as a 
totally orange helmet. And so he had to get a different one. Okay. And I didn't know all that when I walked up. I just saw him. He was sitting there, just sort of sitting on the park bench there at Lake Sammamish and mm-hmm. Alexander's Park. And you could just tell he was kind of down, you know. Mm-hmm. And I went up to him. I said, Mr. Monkey, you know, how are you? You know, uh, how you doing? I'm, my name's Dave. And my uncle races in your class, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, <clears throat> I says, you know, what I, I think I just said, you know. It looks like you're having a down day. What's the problem? As a kid would say, you know, mm-hmm. and and he goes, well, he said it appears they have a problem with my helmet. It has pinstriping on it. <laughs> and I didn't understand that time really. I went, oh, you know, he said you're supposed to have an orange helmet, and mine isn't completely orange, so I'm going to have to go find another one. <laughs> I said, okay, well, my uncle has one, you know. <laughs> you know, I told him. He goes, okay, well, I think I can find one. He says. You know, and off he went. But I understood that I got context at a very early age of what a guy, a guy that's in the top position is mm-hmm. going to be under more scrutiny than the average guy. Right. <laughs> and so you have to know that comes with a territory. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I was racing Fred's boat, you know, I was the the guy that was you know, that people cheered for. But then when you got into the Budweiser equipment, well, now, now you had, they cheered for a while, but, you know, because they saw, you know, the average guy made good. Mm-hmm. But then as you start winning and stacking up wins, well, then they don't like you anymore. Then they start stacking a few rules against it and other things. And if you're frustrated with that and they're vocal, then, you know, they'll use that against you. Yeah. And so that's just what happens. It's just part of, as one guy said, it's always windy on top. This <laughs> is how it works. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Whether you climb a mountain or make it to the top of any sport, it's going to be windy on top. <laughs> well, I'm glad you can laugh about it. Uh, thinking back on that now, you know, just over the years, <clears throat> I was thinking about this the other day. I, I just I've seen a lot of like fan made like buttons and different things. Uh, one I was particularly fond of is, is called called you Darth Vader or Darth Vilwalk, and you had a had a kind of like a skid fin like instead of the, the lightsaber i was just wondering if yeah. you had any favorites that you saw over the years or anything uh like slogans or whatever that, you, that made you chuckle yeah I, I you know i've seen a bunch of them they're probably pretty cool can't remember which ones they are mm-hmm. i would look at them and people have all kinds of things one of the guys that was on the circus team bob ron horny oh yeah, yeah he would probably. he'd make up his own he'd make up his own <laughs> buttons and he'd always have something that's interesting you know like he sponsored fred boats one time so he'd have his own button <laughs> you know <laughs> So, uh, you know, there's a lot of cool ones out there. Uh, These race teams are, uh, race teams are fickle. It's people that, you know, people tend to follow each other around. Mm -hmm. And I told you I'd tell you a Budweiser story. Oh, yes, yes, please do. Uh, There's a, I think it was the first or second year that I raced for Budweiser. I had to go to the, their, annual convention you'd stand up and wave at the crowd and you know it was quite an experience because you know you got you know tens of thousands of people there in a big auditorium or stadium mm-hmm. depending on which venue it was <laughs> but the first one i went to you know is at a big convention center and he had a lot of duties as the Budweiser driver he had to go pour beer for people and go <laughs> visit different groups and say hi and 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 speak before different groups mm-hmm. and so we're doing all that 
in my first year, I'm just thinking, I just want to get in here and out of here without screwing up somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, causing a problem somewhere that I don't understand. So I'm being real careful. I make it through the whole convention. It's just about time to go. I'm looking at my watch. There's like a half hour to go. And the uh, uh, Tony Paterno, who was the vice president of marketing and and uh, Mike, I can't remember Mike's last name, that was the, the head of the Budweiser brand, came by. And as I'm kind of sticking to the side of the, the, the stadium there, trying to stay out of trouble and wait my time out, they come up and says, Hi, Dave, uh, could we talk to you for a minute? I thought, oh, man, what have I done now? You know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and I'm thinking that, and they says, I said, sure, what can I do for you? And they says, well, we got a room over here. And I thought, it's not getting any better. That's what I'm thinking to myself. <laughs> you know, it's getting worse, not better. <laughs> so they go in the room, and uh, uh, and they says, well, Dave, first of all, I want to thank you. You know, you've turned our Budweiser team around. The boat's very important to us, and. Uh, uh, you know, you've managed, you've managed to win us another championship. We really appreciate that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, but there's going to be a but, I'm thinking. This is, <laughs> but what we came here to talk to you about was we want to be successful on our NASCAR team. And we just don't seem to be able to do that. And because you've been a team manager and you're a driver and a team manager and you've been team manager at other places in your sport, in motorsport, that, that you know, you've played that role – uh, we want to be successful in NASCAR racing, and uh, you know we've taken because they were with Hendrick Motorsports at the time, mm-hmm. and they said we've taken Jeff Gordon's car, who was winning everything at the time, and we've repainted the car, and we've taken his engine that won the week before and rebuilt the engine, but still we're still not you know up front mm-hmm. like we want to be. <laughs> you know what can we do that would be different? I says, well, you just told me what the difference, you know, I says, racing isn't about the equipment. It's important to have equipment, but it's all about the people, you know, and can the driver communicate with the people? Can he tell them what he, can he tell them what he needs? Does he have a relationship with the people? There's trust involved. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, that's the important thing. And I could have told him a few stories about some of the people that, that I'd raced with, like I just told you, mm-hmm. you know, earlier. And, uh, and I said, you know, so look for a driver that has a team that he's raced with for a while coming up through different forms of racing and what can bring his own people with him. That's important. Mm-hmm. It's just as important as the equipment. It's not more. Mm-hmm. And they go, okay, well, who do you think's a good guy? Well, through this time frame, I, bet I was at Daytona, and through T. Wayne of Winston, he was a big boat fan, you know. And when I happened to be walking into the pit area there at Daytona, I went down to watch the race. Mm-hmm. He came over and says, Dave, how you doing? <laughs> he says, uh, and he talked and says, you should need anything, so on and so on. And I, no, I was, all, I was fine. Red Leisure had set me up with anything I wanted. And he goes, I want you, you know, Dale Earnhardt's a good friend of mine. He says, I want you to come over here. And Dale, was, Dale and I became friends, mm-hmm. and he was telling me about what he'd done with what was the beginnings of DEI at the time, mm-hmm. and that he was putting it together. He was taking all the crew members that were kind of burnt out from running 30 races from Children's Racing <laughs> and putting them to work in the shop so they could build cars for all the kids. Uh, Dale Jr. and Carrie and Jerry and his daughter they all wanted to race cars, and so he put all the crew members that were tired of traveling. He'd 
they'd rotate them out so that they'd, they'd work in Dale's shop. Mm -hmm. And so he's telling me all about that. And so I started watching Dale's, Dale's um, races, you know, on cable at the time. Yeah. And uh, uh, so I'm watching them. And so then when Budweiser says, well, who do you think, who do you think is, who do you think is a good, is a good guy to look at? And I says, well, I said, I know a guy's got a pretty good name. <laughs> you know, and he's got the best equipment and support from, you know, children's racing, you know. So I don't know. I, you know, I'm no car guy, but I said, what they have is they have a whole building full of, you know, five, six, and seven time Winston Cup champions, mm -hmm. you know and the aid of the Childress engine program and the aerodynamics program with Chevrolet, I said, that'd be a pretty good pick for me. <laughs> I said, okay, well, thanks, Dave. <laughs> well, I, so I walk away from that. I don't think I said much, you know, other than just kind of pointed him in the right direction, mm -hmm. called Dale and told him, hey, you might get a call from Budweiser. I don't know. So, you know, know that I recommended you. <laughs> <laughs> so about two wow. days later, I get a call in Tuckwilla there. Yeah. It's August Bush the third, not the fourth, not the marketing guy, not it's August Bush the third. Wow. He calls me up and I happened to pick up the phone. It's mm -hmm. in the afternoon. I picked it up, I said, Hi, yeah, I complained and he goes, Is this Dave? I said, Yeah. <laughs> August Bush the third. So I just wanted to call you and let you know we hired your guy. <laughs> I thought, Crap. Wow. How'd it get to be my guy? <laughs> but it turned out it worked out. So Yeah. Man, that was good. <laughs> that's funny. I never heard that story before. <laughs> Just thinking back about in your career, you had several crashes uh, in your career, some worse than others. But I was I'm always curious about you know in the driver's mindset, how were you able to come back after those crashes? So I know it takes a special individual to not like let it affect your psyche. Because I know it, it's. In the past, it has affected a lot of drivers where they can't return, right? But you were able to. Well, for me, you know, everybody, when I hurt my hand and when I crashed at Budweiser that time, uh, you know, we knew what we were getting into. We built that boat. We knew the design problems, but we didn't know that we knew at that time how to make all the controls work. Mm -hmm. We ended up, we did, mm -hmm. but we had to build a boat because Budweiser wasn't doing well at the time, you know, mm -hmm. and they were having trouble with their... They copied really the design or that they finally got on the mindset that we did in 1988 and they built a boat that was a better boat. Mm -hmm. But over the year, they, have, they were having troubles keeping it together. And, you know, it broke Spons' office and off it a few times and the capsule wasn't very good. And it had come off two or three times and, and they were having trouble with in that development stage. You know, and that's always like a good friend of mine at Machine Shop once told me, he says, you can always tell the pioneers in any one endeavor, those are the guys that are face down in the mud when the rest of the wagon train goes by. <laughs> <laughs> and that's about right. And that's what Budweiser had suffered that year. They were fighting something new and learning how. <laughs> and so Bernie wanted to build something that was like the Pico boat, so we did. And we, you know, we learned more through that year, but... You know, that's the problem with that design wise with that boat was, you know, if you hit enough, you hit a big enough wave and hit it twice, it's going it, to, because of the cockpit location and, and the full spar and all of that stuff in it, it's, it's going to get upside down and it did. 
Yeah. So we knew all that going in. We had what, we had designed the canopy better for a rear entry than we thought was necessary. We thought we'd actually overdone it. Uh, you know, we built a part on the back of that thing. We thought you could run over at Kenworth. But I did one thing that saved my life. And that's what I said. Let's put a bulkhead right here. So in case that we get run into from the back and it crumples all this stuff, but the boat still crashes from the back, if that bulkhead will fold back and push the water away from the driver. And I'll be darned if that wasn't the one thing when that, that, that back crumpled yeah. and, and it that one honeycomb panel because we know that honeycomb is a little more resilient than composite. Composite, when it blows up, it just explodes when it reaches its limit. Aluminum just bends. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't explode the same way as composites do. And so when the composites exploded, that panel, that bulkhead, saw that water. And just like we talked about, it folded back at 45 degrees. It hit me in the, the very back of the helmet and took the helmet off. When the water hit it, but it blew that camp canopy lid off there like it said, put a hand grenade inside that capsule. Yeah. And so we knew what we'd done, and we fixed it after that. And currently, you know, the capsules that we're running today are, you know, the product of that uh, of that accident, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. If I had to sacrifice a couple of fingers so that a whole bunch of other people could live, well, that's a better bargain. And a lot of people were telling me after that that, you know, hey, you know, because there's in that kind of situation, it was heavily insured, so you could become a rich guy by doing nothing at all. <laughs> you know, you could get paid, you know, a huge sum of money weekly for years to come. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I just felt that I had something more to do. Didn't know what it was, but mm-hmm. I thought that I had something more to do. So I just set my mind that I was going to go do that, and. And so, you know, I worked hard at, you know, I didn't have my, I only had one finger working the first couple of years. You know, it was only the third year that I had two fingers working on the right hand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, went through, I think, 28 surgeries and all of that to get, to get back to one piece. And uh, so I just decided that it, that was something to do. And, and because, you know, like I said, I'm vested into, you know, these boats, I've, I always vested myself into it that if the boat crashed, well, it was just as much the driver's fault as anybody else, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> so uh, there's no reason not to get back in. Okay. And and so that stuff never really bothered me. Well, I think it's it's part of your character to to keep going because I know a lot of people throughout of those years involved with crashes that they can't handle it, right? So it's takes a strong <laughs> person to do that. It does. Yeah, well, I, I heard John Forrest one time says, I've been on fire from here to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've heard that interview probably. Oh, yeah. And uh, I thought about this. When he said that, he just had to laugh. I says, yeah, I've been on I've been on fire from Lawrence Lake to Doha. <laughs> Doha. I did, I've been on fire along in a, in a lot of places. I've been upside down, crashed uh, more times than I can imagine or ever believed possible. But. You know, I was, you know, one of the things that I, I hold some pride in is along with Ron Jones, I learned a lot about what safety was to become mm-hmm. and helped in that process. And, uh, you know, had a lot to do with the design of the capsules that we're running right now. Yeah. And although none of them are ever perfect, but, uh, you know, we learn every time that we crash something. Yeah. 
but you know, it, overall, it's 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 worked out. Nice. It's worth it. Okay. Well, I know you've been helping out uh, Kelly down at Bucket List Racing with his new endeavor um, here and there. I was just curious if you could comment on what you've been doing with the, the team there and how things are going with their new acquisition. Well, they had the, it, it's a boat that's, that's really very similar to the T5, T6 boats. It has some of the things from T5 in it, some of the things from T6 in it. Well, it's good. It's it's at it's at the proper weight. It's at fighting weight. Um, okay. He has to. He had to. You know, we did some things at the Budweiser boats that a lot of people kind of overlooked. But we rotated the gearboxes and moved the engine so it was in the center. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's a difficult thing to do because it's moving that gearbox is a is a V drive with an offset and. As you roll those things around, the angles become very complex. It's a difficult thing to change into okay. and to do it that way. But, you know, so I am helping. We've got all that done. Got the engine reinstalled. Um, that will be a much better uh, bonus result in it. And, like, you know, it, it won't be difficult to make it. If the motor runs well, it's the boat will be pretty darn fast because okay. it's – it's built off of the original plans that, that I drew in 1996. So, wow. um, it'll, it's, it's not going to be hard to make that fast if the motor runs well, okay. you know, and, and Kelly can build his own propellers. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, uh, it looks good. Okay. I mean, both, both Kelly and I are kind of those guys that none of us ever had a lot of money in racing, mm-hmm. we're always doing something we had to do ourselves in the flat bottom racing, you know. And just imagine, you know, anybody's been to a junkyard and you go in that and you go look in the junkyard <laughs> and there's that old dog that's patrolling the perimeter, you know, and he's got a chunk of ear missing, he's blind in one eye, kind of walks with a limp, you know. You know that yeah. dog? Oh, yeah. But you just know, you cross that line, it's going to be a fight. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you may beat that old dog but it's going to be a fight <laughs> well you, you mentioned that you guys haven't really had much money in boat racing I don't think many people have right it's not a, a, a place to go for to make a lot of money right <laughs> no 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 I guess it's much corny that the circus team you know uh, yeah I forget he'd blown up we'd blown up some engine I think it was a gold cup that We'd, we put the engine in at the Gold Cup in San Diego and Chip was driving mm-hmm. the circus boat. We put the motor in and everything's all set. We we go out there, we light the motor 15 minutes before the race. Mm-hmm. No oil pressure. <laughs> Everybody looks around, we go, what now? You know, what do we do now? I mm-hmm. says, we haven't got a choice. We're going to blow the engine up. We got to change the motor whether we make it or not. So we change the motor. We get the motor in there. We get it in time. It's in the water. He goes out and runs. Chiff gets the inside. He's making rub the inside. Motor blows a hot end. Second motor blows a hot end going halfway to the first turn. And just past the start line. You know, Butch Corning turns around and looks at me and goes, fire me. I'm too stupid to quit. <laughs> well, is there any chance we'll see you in the driver's seat of... The bucket list racing's new acquisition. Well, I don't know what they're going to do as far as 
you know, they got to find sponsorship and you know mm-hmm. try to pay for things. So, you know, that will probably bring a driver, but I will certainly get in the thing I said. If I'm working on something, I'm not afraid to get in it. Okay. So we'll see what happens. Okay. Well, it'd be exciting if, if you make it out there again. Fire me, I'm too stupid to quit. A lot of people <laughs> would agree with you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, just thinking back, last thing I want to talk to you about is just thinking back on your career. Uh, with all your teams and as a driver, as a champ, getting championships, uh, the 10 Gold Cup victories you have, 67 unlimited race wins, uh, which is most of all time. No one else has more wins than you. What are you most proud of in that, in your, in your career? I, over the whole thing, and I said this a long time ago, I said, they said, you know, what do you want to be known as? And I says. I just want to be known as the hardest racer that was there, mm-hmm. you know? And I think John Love, the guy that used to be a promotion guy for Chip, and he was for me too, and he was for Roger Pinsky. Mm-hmm. He came in the truck one day, and there was some sort of bad press about this or that, and we're at the Gold Cup. John comes in there, he goes, he said, just remember, this ain't no popularity contest, it's a race. Go <laughs> win the race. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything you, you wish you would have accomplished in your time? No, I, I, what what more could a guy hope for? Yeah, you know. Yeah, I've been able to do the things that people only dream about in double digits. How many people get to do that? How many people get to win? I think I won. I won ten times in Seattle. I'm not sure, but you won a lot. A lot of times in Seattle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and you know, and all those. You know, story places. We won a whole bunch of times. You know, mm-hmm. like, but I think Elstree, we ran like five or we won the Gold Cup like five or six years in a row. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so I could put a run together like that. You know, but I wouldn't be anything if it wasn't for the people, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for being on the show with us. It was great talking with you. Well, happy to tr- happy to be involved. Thank right. you. Well, hopefully. Uh, this summer will bring us some some racing and some more fun times ahead of us. If not, well, maybe you know, maybe I'll just maybe we ought to just see if we can't get a street race going. If they won't let us run an event, there you go. Uh, we'll have to start the the world of outlaws of hydroplanes, I guess. Well, maybe we can bring back the uh, towing on your bikes, right? Just make some little ones and we get on some bikes and. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we could go to Green Lake and still do that. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> One way or another, we'll be racing around a lake. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our episode. Make sure you come back next week to listen to our next episode. We release new episodes every Tuesday at 5 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your podcast player, as well as rate and review your experience. For more updates on Hydro News, check us out on social media. We're on the major players, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Rooster Talk is also online with our website, www.roostertailtalk.com. On the website, you can sign up for an email subscription list to get notifications on upcoming episodes, Hydro News, podcast updates, and much, much more. Finally, this is a free podcast to all of our listeners. And if you're really enjoying your experience and want to help us to continue to grow and expand, please donate. You can find a link to donate through PayPal on our website through the support tab. So until next time, I hope to see you at the races.